You are listening to Real Life and Other Fantasies, a podcast by engaging storytellers for engaged story listeners. Here's your host, author and journalist, Melvin E. Edwards. Hello and welcome to this edition of Real Life and Other Fantasies. I'm your host, Melvin E. Edwards, and my guest today for the final episode of the year is going to explore some topics no one wants to discuss, but everyone needs to hear. Dr. Jan Canty, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Dr. Canty is a psychologist, writer, photographer, educator, consultant, fellow podcast host, and a cancer survivor. She's going to tell you some sobering stories about her life, how her life was tragically disrupted by death. <laughs> She's written two books on the subject. The first one is called A Life Divided, a psychologist's memoir about the double life and murder of her husband and her road to recovery. Her second book was released in 2023, and it's called What Now? Navigating the Aftermath of Homicide and Suicide. It is sobering but an important subject for all of us to consider as we head into the new year. This is the closest thing I've ever done to a true crime show, so I'm pleased to have an expert here to give us her insights. On the stormy evening of July 13th, 1985, Jan's spouse of 11 years failed to come home. She reported him missing. A week later, she was called by a Detroit homicide detective. Then an inspector disclosed scandalous secrets about her spouse and what led to his death. In addition, he suggested she check her finances, since witnesses claimed her husband had been handing out cash the previous 18 months. The following week, his body parts were unearthed from a shallow grave in northern Michigan, and she was called back to identify them at the Wayne County morgue. John Carl Fry and Don Marie Spence were held for questioning. The media frenzy began. So began her 30-year redacted life. And Dr. Canty, before I begin with my list of questions, can you just tell us how you're doing today and give us a little bit more about your journey that led you to where you are right now? I would say overall I'm doing very well. I remarried 17 years ago to a fantastic guy, and he adopted my children who were adopted. So they have a dad and a mom. Um, that part of my life went really well. Um, I continued to work. That part went well. I'm still working, and I'm 73. Um, but last week, I just got di uh, was told that my cancer relapsed, so I got to oh, go back no. into treatment. Um, and he said after the flu season, uh, because it lowers your immunity. Um, but you know, I, I I I sincerely mean it when I said I take the attitude that I'm grateful there's treatment. I'm grateful I got insurance. I'm grateful I got a great oncologist and a support system. Not everybody has that. And had I been diagnosed with my kind of cancer 15, 20 years ago, they would have just said, pack up. We have nothing to offer you. Um, go home and take care of your affairs. So it's come a long way in that time. And I feel really optimistic that I'll be able to squash it a second time. Uh, I think attitude is part of it. It's not all of it, but I 
also am mindful of the fact that there are many people far younger than me who have perished in various ways. And I'm lucky to have made it to this far, and I, I have gratitude about that as well. So I go into it with that attitude and open-minded and trust, and we'll see what happens. And I think, I really believe that come summer, I, at the end of summer, I will be saying, I did it. The numbers are back down. Time will tell. Well, you'll be in our thoughts and prayers as we as you go through this again, unfortunately. Yeah, thank you. So, send your best wishes. So, on the subject of your books and your life, what are some of the common myths about homicide um, and its aftermath? Oh, man, there are so many. I don't know where to start. Um, I'll just go with some real popular ones. One of the myths is that we have this thing called closure. And there's so many reasons that's not true. One is that today, especially, only it's a flip of the coin whether the perpetrators will be caught and tried. The closure rate, uh, oddly, same term, on homicides have gone down despite advances in technology. So the odds of you ending up with the right person in the seat, and I say that deliberately because I'm also very active in the Innocence Project. But the chances of having you somebody, somebody accurately uh, called into question what they've done are lower than they used to be. So that's one reason closure cannot happen. Another reason is that even if they do have the right person in the chair and they go before the court, 97% of the time they opt for a plea bargain rather than a trial. So only a sliver of people actually get a trial. And what that means as a homicide survivor is that you have a lot of unanswered questions that would only come out in a trial that you'll have to live with the rest of your life without knowing. And secondly, that they're going to get a lesser offense, most likely, and leniency in in their penalty because they've taken a plea bargain. Otherwise, there'd be no incentive for them to do so. So closure eludes you that way. But I think the most common way closure eludes you is because there, it never ends. People don't understand that the story begins with the arrest, if there is one, and it unfolds from there. I can give you a couple of examples. I have a woman I met on my podcast whose two-year-old was murdered by her boyfriend, a new boyfriend, and he was convicted, put away for 20 years. He came out, went right back into the same community where he committed the crime, and ever since then, periodically, little Lisa Marie's grave is disrupted. That's not closure. Wow. I have another one who's fighting the probation of the person who killed both of her parents and her sister. Um, in a drive-by midnight shooting for robbery was the motive, but he shot up the house at 4 a.m., killing all, everyone. She was the oldest in line. She was the de facto head of the household at age 16. Now she's fighting for parole. So it never ends. That's one big myth. Um, another big myth is that we get social support, that people come rushing to our side and, and really prop us up in our hour of need. And what typically happens, that may happen on occasion, but what typically happens is that you get this gush of support when it first breaks, when the arrest is made, if there is one, when you go to trial, if there is one, but in between there's little support. And after three months, usually after three months since the death, it begins to erode. And in time, you become the poster child for crime in your neighborhood and stigmatized, and people really don't want to be associated with you. So it's very, very common that people have a turnover of friendships. They don't get the support they need. And 
I think friends sometimes want to help, but they don't know how. And by the time your shock starts to wear off, maybe three months into it, after the formalities are over, the funeral's over, the press has backed off, you're beginning to uh, face the, the realities of what's going on around you. That's about the time everybody else has gone back to their life. And hmm. you're wanting to talk about it then, but there's nobody there to talk to. And the thing that we really need most at that point in time is just a pair of ears. We don't need any wisdom. We don't need bumper sticker advice. What we need is somebody to sit there and just listen to us. But that's so often lacking. So those would be my top two is that there's, there's a lack of closure and a lack of social support in the far majority of cases. Okay, and I've got some other questions relating to someone who's not on the survival end of it, but someone who's a friendship um, colleague and who can offer their kind of support. And we'll, we'll come back to that in just a moment. Sure. Thank you. It's a good question. So what are some ways that grief from homicide differs from other kinds of losses? Well, there certainly is an overlap, no doubt about it. But some of the ways that it differs is that it's, first of all, extremely public. Unlike, a, let's say, if you die from, have a friend or relative die of cancer, it's private. But when it's public, because it's a murder, when the journalists get a hold of it, not only is your information dumped out there for the world to see, but when people start to follow the story, and not everybody's story gets in the journal, that's a whole other topic, is the preferential treatment that journalists go after, typically. Um, that's a whole other topic. But if you are one of the people that the journalists go after and people start to follow your story closely, they begin to feel like they know you. And when they begin to feel like they know you, they feel entitled to ask personal questions. They take offense if you don't want to answer. When you're out in public, people take liberties that they have no right taking because you're not a celebrity. You did not ask to be in the situation. And very often down the line, for example, like in the Dahmer Netflix recent production, the, the real life homicide survivors, those are the relatives of the people that were perished by Dahmer. They weren't even consulted that this documentary was coming down the pike. And they were watching it, seeing people look like them. They had the same clothing as them, same mannerisms as them. And it was like watching their double. And nobody even thought to consult them ahead of time. That's that's wow. the secondary trauma that can happen. So there's lots of, of uh, uh, arms to this, and it can get complicated real quick. Wow. Those are things that I hadn't even thought about before. And I'm, I'm sure that was the case for the producers, too. They probably just never thought about it. I think more and more they do. They don't care because it's been brought to their attention in previous productions. Like, why did you do X, Y and Z? And there's even there's this really smart woman in Atlanta. She's only a law student and she's trying to put together uh, support for a bill that would make it necessary for documentarians like Netflix and others, Oxygen, to get written permission from homicide survivors before their story can be told on the internet, or I mean on the on the big screen or in the little screen, because we don't ask to be celebrities. We don't want to be in the news, and it is horrific when you are. They take liberties you would not believe, like they disrupted my husband's funeral. They didn't have any qualms about that. And I went an hour and a half early to warn the undertaker, the the funeral um, personnel there, that they're going to come and I don't want them in here. 
And I was given no reassurance that they wouldn't be allowed inside. And in fact, they were. And arguments broke out behind me between those people that had come to pay their last respects and the news people. And I, it was so awful. I ended up leaving early just to get out of there and go home. Mm, I didn't even that's, finish. That's, that's terrible. And, and you're not a public figure, but treat, people treat you like you are. And those were some of the reasons that I ended up leaving Detroit altogether, which I hated because I love Detroit. There's so many things about it. It was in my blood. I mean, my relatives graves were there and I got educated there and I, there's a I it's hard to explain there's there's a genuineness to it that it's hard to describe I I respected so many people who are historic, historically connected with Detroit like Mother Waddles and so forth and hmm. so it was hard to leave and I did and that was a large reason because of the media and I mean, it's not right that they should have that much leeway. But this young woman in Atlanta, I hope she prevails because it's it's our story. It, and this, this is a long-running debate. Where does the public's right to know end and the privacy rights of the victims begin? That's that's the crux of the matter. That's, that's a great question. Uh, have you ever thought about being or considering yourself a consultant? or offering yourself as a consultant for production companies? No, I can't say I have. The closest I would come to that, and it's not exactly the same thing, but I, I um, let me back up a second. I had a, a, a bad taste in my mouth from the media, not not because of the way they portrayed me. No, they, they were fair that way. I don't have qualms about that. It was the invasiveness that I disliked. But uh, with, it's ironic that with my distaste of, and distrust of journalists that it, I actually ended up befriending one and she wrote the forward to my book because she's trying to work to change this, to get to get journalism schools to listen to us and say, hey, we got to make this as part of our training to know how to be sensitive about this, to know how to go about it with some decency. But no, that it's ever crossed. I wouldn't even know how to begin to get into that role uh, I'm nobody's knocking on my door for that <laughs> yeah I, I wouldn't even have any uh, suggestions for you but maybe something for for you to consider um, sometime in the future or for anybody yeah. else who's out there who's looking to produce a film or a documentary or something ethically and, and want to include the, the victim's um, sentiment in the, in the final production that's something that needs to be considered it does. It does. All right. And so just a moment ago, I mentioned um, some asking for some of the recommendations that you might provide for a friend or a colleague who has a homicide survivor within their community. How do they coach them and how how can they be helpful after, let's say, the funeral has concluded? There's a lot they can do before the funeral, but. It has to do with safety concerns and so forth. But after the funeral, a lot will depend on how well they know the person, of course. But assuming that they know the person well, after the funeral is over, they can encourage them, which usually will occur within a week, maybe two at most, depending on the release of the body by the medical examiner. Sometimes they hold on to it for some time to the point where cremation has to be done and it could take much longer. But let's assume for the moment that it occurs within a week, which is pretty record-breaking time for a homicide. But if it does, um, the, what a close friend 
or a close colleague can do is to be there for them, to listen to them, and also encourage them to go see their healthcare provider, their medical general family practitioner, because of two reasons. One is whatever health conditions they had prior to the murder, be it hypertension and um, diabetes, that's going to get worse as a result of the stress. And secondly, they're going to develop new conditions as a result of the stress, like bruxism, where they grind their teeth or indigestion or headaches, certainly insomnia. And they need to have all the strength that they can muster because they got a lot ahead of them. So going to see their physician earlier rather than later would be a strong recommendation that a friend can set up for them even and say, I'll even drive you if need be and make sure that you get the care you need. That's priority. Another thing that a friend or colleague could do early on is to uh, encourage them to get uh, in touch as soon as possible with a victim advocate. Normally, that can be done pretty easily through the through the uh, DA, through the prosecution office. The victim advocate is a special person in the community uh, that is trained, that works as a go-between between between any kind of crime victim and the courts. And the downside is after the court proceedings are over, they're gone. But you can get uh, community-based Uh, victim advocates who are not formally trained to support you further after that is necessary. But they can give you the uh, nuances of what to expect as the investigation unfolds and so forth. Um, If if that's not going to happen in a cold case, of course, then that won't be as critically important. A friend could also help doing research in that community, in that vicinity, to find out is there a high recommendation, a strong recommendation for a support group that they can plug their friend into. Not every community has them. And it's, I, I, I maybe I'm old fashioned here, but I think it's better to do an in-person than virtual, but virtual will have to do if that's all that can happen. But a friend can do the groundwork and to find out, yeah, there's this one over in Tampa and there's this one over here. And, you know, this is what I found out about the groups. And if you'd like to check them out I'll even go with you or not depending on what you want Uh, but the main thing I think a friend and colleague can do early on is know that they're there they're at their disposal because one of the things for example we don't want to do is be out in public so they can run interference for us they can uh, run to the store and get prescriptions they can do grocery shopping they can maybe maybe it's on the schedule that we have our pet taken into the vets and they can run that errand for us that's a huge thing we do not want to be out in public for a lot of reasons safety reasons and journalists and exhaustion so running interference that way would be very beneficial but through all of this what i do want to emphasize is that the ultimate decision should certainly be left to the homicide survivor because we're we feel like our life has been taken from us that we are out of control so anything that a friend or colleague offers to do should be done definitely with the tone of it's up to you i'm here if you want it if you don't fine rather than imposing it and strong arming or even appearing to strong arm because you're going to get blowback if you do that and don't expect a lot of gratitude for what it is you're doing because we're not there our mind is saturated Um, Maybe down the pike you'll get the gratitude that's owed you, but 
in the beginning, don't expect a lot of that. In fact, you could even expect to be, unfortunately, getting the brunt of some of the frustrations that we feel mm-hmm. because you're our safe haven. Yeah. You're our soft shoulder to lean on and maybe displaced onto you unfairly. Wow. So this so don't episode take it personally. Will, yeah, that, that's re- really good advice. So this, this episode is scheduled to air um, December 26th, so the day after Christmas. So it's still during the holiday season. What do you say, or do you say anything to someone who's lost someone, let's say during that calendar year, this is their first holiday season without that loved one. Do you, is it? How do you feel Absolutely, about you expressing should talk with sympathy? Them. Yes. Right. I, I think... Again, this assumes you know the person well. You're not just a distant neighbor who never spoken before. Uh, I, I think to simply acknowledge what's obvious. This Christmas is going to be tough on you. I know that. This is going to be different. I know you're going to be missing so-and-so. Um, and I wish I could fix it. I can't. I don't know what to say. But I just want you to know I recognize that. At minimum, at minimum, it would be helpful to send a text to that effect and next year, and the following year, for several years. Because after the first year, everybody goes back to their life and they forget. I have a friend, a close, he became a close friend. He was one of the Detroit police officers who helped me when my husband was murdered. And in a couple, and we always kept in touch, not frequently, but we kept in touch. Turns out his was, son was one of the first people murdered at the Pulse nightclub. And he became a homicide survivor. And I was his support. And every June, I send him a text message, every single one without fail, thinking of you, thinking of your son, knowing your head's where where it is at this point in time. And he said, I'm the only person that does it. So definitely the first year, but be there and just acknowledge the obvious. Um, Don't sugarcoat it and say, I'm sure everything will be all right or... You know, we're here, we're here and we're going to be celebrating if you want to come by and join. They're not in the celebrator, <laughs> but just say it's going to be tough. It's going to be different. And I wish I could fix it. I, I don't know what to say, what to offer. But if you think of something, I'm here. Okay. Another great piece of advice. So we've talked about you being a, a homicide survivor, but we haven't really talked about the situation. Can you tell us a little bit more about the situation that led to your your husband's murder and the immediate aftermath for you because of the double life that you realized he was leading? Yeah, it was. It's a long, complicated Hitchcock-like story, but I, I'll try to summarize it as quickly as I can. Then you can ask anything after if you want to. Uh, I was leading a pretty normal life. I mean, I went to school, I paid bills, I life was chugging along. And then all of a sudden he failed to come home, which was not like him. And a week later, I found myself in front of Inspector Gil Hill, who coincidentally was in, just came off the movie set with Eddie Murphy. He played his boss in the Beverly Hills Cop series. He was Inspector Todd. And I bring that up because he's no different in real life. <laughs> He's very short on words, extremely intense, about at least a foot taller than me. Uh, He does not mince words. Hmm. And and he's he's got a tough job. I'll I'll hand it to him, you know. But he basically, in a very few words, brought me in on a Sunday morning at 7 o'clock to avoid the press and said, we have reason to believe your husband's been murdered. 
We don't have his body yet. But uh, I suggest strongly that you go home and you look at your finances because we feel he's been money, handing money out cash on Casper Street and the Red District of Detroit. And uh, we'll be in touch. Hmm. And I, my legs could barely stand. I went home and checked my finances, and weren't, which he had always, always taken care of. And I trusted him to do that. And not only were was there no money, we were in debt, $30,000. And that's in 1985. Wow. We owed wow. money to the IRS. We were behind on house payments. We were behind on rent for his office. You name it. And I'm like, he's been working all these hours. How could we even be behind a penny? And then a week later, uh, well, no, it was more like eight to 10 days later, I got another phone call. So I called my parents in the interim, they flew out. I got another phone call from a fantastic woman who deserves a show in her own right, an episode in her own right, named uh, Detective Marlis Landeros. Marlis Landeros, was this beautiful, tall, willowy woman who was the first black female in a managerial supervisory position in the Detroit Homicide Department. Hmm, Well-earned. She was intuitive. She was respectful. She was professional. She was so good at what she did that she knew when to stop talking so I could digest the things that she was telling me. Her pacing was flawless. She never got out of the professional role, but I always felt that she was compassionate. And she went beyond what she had to do. She did not, for example, have to accompany me to the morgue, but she did. And stood there literally by my side, propping me up. She didn't have to do that, but she did. She didn't have to come to the funeral. At least I don't believe she did, but she was there. She told me later, I didn't know her at that point. But uh, I credit my sanity to her. She mm-hmm. she was just fantastic. Um, in fact, side note, I never forgot her. And I mentioned to my daughters as they grew up how impressed I was. People who knew me well knew what I thought of her. And somehow, some way, and I had moved away from Detroit to escape the media. And somehow, the word got back to Detroit, how I felt about Detective Landeros. And I got a phone call on Christmas Eve in 2019 from her daughter, from Detective Landeros's daughter, telling me that she had been killed in a traffic-related oh, crash because no. of her job. And she asked me to come out and do her eulogy. I didn't wow. hesitate. I said, of course, I'll be there. And she said, it's going to be in a week. And, you know, who likes to travel at Christmas <laughs> into a blizzard? But I said, for her, I would do it. And then I told my, I happened to mention it to my daughter, who then was living in New York. And she said, Mom, I know what she means to you. You should not have to go through this by yourself. I'm going to meet you in Detroit. She'd never been to Detroit anyway. And um, support you through it. So she flew in and she met me in Detroit. And I gave her eulogy. That's the impression. That's the um, effect that this woman had on my life. Uh, I hear, and I, I want to say that in part because there's so much bad stuff out there that happens with cops and some of it's turned. I have no doubt about that, but it's not all cops. And some of them are just amazing people. At any rate, um, the funeral was over. 
um, the press would not lighten up. They followed me. They disrupted his funeral. They showed up at my house. The we had was what we call, um, if the term is death tourists, we had death tourists. I had death tourists come by the house, wow. posing for pictures in front of my house and stealing items from outside. That's common wow. once you get in the news. And I slowly came around to the realization if I was ever going to get my life together, I had to leave. And I really didn't want to. For so many reasons, I did not want to go. But I I felt my mental health was important. So I pulled out a map. And I'm like, where do I go? <laughs> um, and I decided I was going to leave clinical work and go into teaching because I didn't have that emotional energy any longer to do clinical work. and never returned to it, by the way. So I chose a dusty little town in the middle of the Midwest where people didn't know me. And their newspapers were as thick as a folded napkin. Their biggest <laughs> crimes were mail theft and check fraud. And the teens aspired to the future farmers of America instead of gangs. It was a total turnaround. In fact, people took offense at me for locking my car. True story. <laughs> wow. Why are you locking my car? Do you think I'm going to steal your car? <laughs> making accusations just by protecting yourself. Yeah, I don't like it's just habit. You know, like cars in Detroit are sold every 13 seconds, you know. But at any rate, it was the antidote I needed. The people treated me well. I loved teaching, as it turns out. The, the students were extremely respectful. I mean, they would take off their hats in front of me. They would stand at my desk and wait to be told to seat, sit down. They opened doors for me. I, I was not accustomed to wow. any of that. It was like I was in Mayberry, honest to God. It was like, <laughs> where have I landed here? You know, I And they thought it was funny how much I didn't know about rural living. I didn't know what you call those propane tanks. I call them um, good and plenties that you see outside of farms. I didn't know what a silo was called. I, I was invited to a pig farm just to see it. I, I went. Um, they would pull pranks on me, like telling me that corn, it gets so hot here in August that you get popcorn in the fields where we grow the popcorn. <laughs> and I believed them. And I, that's not true. But, well, but it was disappointed. just. <laughs> it was what I needed. Come I July, got... and you realize nothing was there to eat. <laughs> yeah, but except the stench of the big bars was. Oh my God! How do people deal with it? Oh, but um, it was what I needed, and I had the good fortune of being able to choose the classes I wanted, which was sweet. And I chose. This is part of my recovery. This is where this story is going. I chose cross cultural psychotherapy, and nobody wanted to touch that one with a long handle. And I thought great i want this course and i thought if i'm going to teach cross-cultural psychotherapy the best thing i can do is travel and bring stories back first-hand experience to different cultures so i started traveling the world going to very remote places i mean where they didn't have electricity paved roads clean water uh, uh, all the stories i could tell you the bugs in my bed and the monkeys in my tent and stuff that has happened but but what I came back with from that trip, those trips I took abroad, was gratitude. I felt for the first time, my situation isn't that bad. Americans complain a lot. I have a roof over my head. I have the police that believe me. I have an education. I have reliable transportation, clean water, paved roads, a flushing toilet. What could more could I want, you know? And I... It, it, it put it in a different, totally different context. 
because I knew firsthand then. I could say firsthand I knew that people who had far worse, who would never get a helping hand of any kind, that would never see a physician in their entire life, no matter how sick they were, who would never be taken to a police for support, no matter how many times they were beaten and stabbed. Going on and on, I mean, I, I was astounded at what I learned when I traveled remotely. In fact, hmm. when my daughter, when she was 14, she became this little princess and I wasn't having it. She, I'm not buying, I'm not wearing anything that you buy from Ross. I'm gonna only wear Abercrombie and Fitch. I go, oh really? Hmm. So I said to her, let's go to Africa, let's go to Kenya and go on a safari. And she's like, up for that. So we're all around the plane. I said, oh, by the way, I forgot to mention we're having no electricity, no water. We're going to live in a tent and we're going to work on building a girl's school. She's like, what? Because <laughs> she wanted to curl her hair and talk to her friends and do photo. You know, I said, no, we're going to be working building joists. I don't know what a joist is. I go, you will. So we did that. We lived in a tent. And this one night, we're not supposed to have food in the tent. And this one night, um, I'm getting a little off the subject. You can cut this out if you want to. But we had we had this sniffing sound outside our tent. And my daughter and I woke up and I said, do you have any food in here? And she said, just red vines. And I go, I told you no food in the tent. And she said, but you always told me that's not food, which I probably did say at some point. So we ended up eating all this licorice, which I ate. Come out, I asked the Maasai who were walking around the camp, what were these footprints outside our tent? And they said it was a war dog. I'm like, oh. Um, So when I came back from world travel and the projects that I worked on in India and elsewhere in Kenya, I came back with a totally different view of my life and of the United States. And I, it never left me. It never left, or my daughter. She still talks about it. How, my God, Mom! You know, I she ended up giving away all her clothes, by the way, before we got back on the mm, plane, wow. and wanting me to adopt more children. I said, I got two. That's <laughs> enough. Um, that was a healing part of my journey. The other thing I did was I realized I wasn't well physically. I had gone into early menopause as a result of the stress and never able to bear children, which turned out to be a good thing because I adopted my kids who I love so much. Uh, but I, I wasn't feeling well and I thought, I'm gonna start working out. So I went to the gym four days a week and joined a group of other women and we ended up doing triathlons together. Oh, and wow. our pledge to each other was nobody's gonna cross the line alone. When we get to the finish line, we're going to wait for the other person. Even if, My husband rolled his eyes when I told him, like, oh, that would only be a woman thing. That would never happen in a man's triathlon. But at any rate, that's what we did. We helped each other cross the finish line together. And I met the most amazing people. And what a feeling you get when you get that second wind. It's like somebody put a motor in your feet, you know. And I think all of that combined, I think. And, and then the third piece, the, the third piece of my recovery besides uh, physically attending to myself and traveling was the podcast because I still hadn't talked much about what happened to me with other people 30 years later. And when I started my podcast and meeting other homicide survivors and meeting this network of very supportive people within the within the podcast community, I felt like I met my, met my tribe, you know, it's like, I could finish your sentence for you and you could finish my sentence for me. That's how much our stories resonated with one another. I never uh, realized how much I needed them in my life. And they were the missing piece. Um, 
they boosted me they they gave me purpose and i so appreciated their willingness to share their stories i felt gratification for their trust in me and that never left me i learned a lot from them so those three pieces led me to where i am today and sustained me still wow that's pretty remarkable so we've talked about some things that are generally unlikely to happen to most of the audience but we can be assured that we will all eventually die. So we need right. to be prepared. And my next, I guess, couple of questions involve practical things like preparing a will and other final documents. And I, I think this should be on everyone's New Year's resolution list to finalize these details, no matter your age or situation. My, and my question yep. for you is what, what are some of the steps for having an official will that will not be challenged in court? Well, I tried to do it on my own. I got these forms you fill out and take them to a notary and oh my God, it just made it worse. I always found, oh, you didn't do this right, take it back and do that. Finally, I said, I'm gonna bite the bullet and just call it an attorney who does this for a living. And it was nothing. It was, I was done with the whole thing in less than an hour. I'm like, why didn't I do this beforehand? Um, so that if you go to an attorney, they'll, they'll likely tell you, well, look up these account numbers or find out this information, fill out these forms and bring it in. And I think it, on the average, depends on your situation. If you're a person with a once better apartment, it's going to be different than if you have a guest house in the country. But I think an average cost is around 300 and it's, it will stand up in court. You get your questions answered you're given multiple copies you can give them to whoever you think needs them and you can have some assurance like well i can cross that one off my list but your point is well taken i think that one of the chief reasons that's not done or done soon enough is because people don't want to face the fact that they are going to die but as far as i know that's the case there's nobody that gets out there's a one-to-one ratio go do it (laughs) yeah exactly and it isn't so and i have lived the other side of it where he didn't have a will and it is a nightmare oh my god the things that (sighs) oh he it was so messed up legally had i not had friends who were willing to bend over for me i don't know what i would have done i had by luck, I had a, I had a real estate attorney friends and luck that they were saying, well, this is what you need to do. And had I not had them, I don't know what I would have done. It was tough enough then. It's like, why not do it the easy way? It's like, if you're going to paint your house, why do it in a rainstorm? Do it on a nice day. Hmm. I mean, because why put yourself in a situation to make it more difficult when the crisis happens? Because as far as I know, uh, your thinking isn't going to be as good then. And you don't want to be trying to fix it after the fact it's not going to work um, and not only that if you wait too long to do these some of these things and you are in a crisis mode your um, wariness can be thin and you can be more prone to scams you don't want that your, your vigilance isn't with you when you're tired and stressed so do it when you have clarity just face the facts and get it done mark it off your list and you will feel so much better it is so nice to know an attorney looked it over and it's it's legitimate and and i had a list of questions that i brought with me like probate and so forth and and it's a it was a load off and i just put it all away in my safe deposit box and a copy to my uh person who i wanted to take over my affairs should that happen when that happens um and it's just it's anticlimactic when you go and do it it really is just go do it 
And by the way, last week I just had um, uh, notification that my personal information was dumped onto the black web. So another mm. end of year thing is change your passwords yearly. I haven't done that. And I wish I had. Well, yeah, that's something I really need to to take yeah. seriously. It takes two, it takes two seconds, you know, and that's, that's great and advice. it does it, it takes more than two seconds if if you if they get a hold of your information and you're trying to slog through it, yeah, trying to clean it up it afterwards. It takes a lot longer right. than fixing it ahead of time. So a couple of things. I, well, one thing I'd like to add to a list of New Year's resolutions that I think we need to to consider, and I'm talking to myself too here. Uh, things like being an organ or tissue, tissue donor. It's oh. really easy to do. When you go and have your driver's license renewed, you can do it right then. It's just a matter of checking a box. So right. I strongly encourage people to do that. Can you think of any other kind of ways that people can proactively prepare to continue a legacy after they're gone? Well, that's a good one. Um, Certainly the tissue donor. Um, sort of like that is cataract donors um, are needed after the fact. Driver's license will take care of that too. Um, I would say to pave the way for the for people who follow you, who have to clean up your mess, de-junk your house. Do that now. Don't make it so it's impossible for somebody to come in after you and go, I don't know where this stuff is kept. I don't know what's valuable. Uh, Dejunk your house. It will make your life better. And whoever follows you will thank you for it. And uh, do it once a year. Uh, and some, find a, it, it may help you. I don't know. It, it did me to find a person to give it to. I had a woman that moved in the neighborhood recently who had fled domestic violence with the clothes off her back from another state. I met her in, indirectly, and turns out she was living with basically nothing. And I thought, oh, if I got the answer for you. <laughs> I started going through my towels and my Christmas decorations and sheets and candles and silverware. And my husband, we loaded up the back of this pickup truck within two days. Rugs. I mean, everything, everything that I gave her, she didn't have. Now, there's an incentive to do it, too, you know. So, yeah, de-junk, that would be my thing for your legacy because um, <laughs> it will help people that will thank you for it after the fact, particularly if you leave instructions. Like, in my after my death, please give this clock to so-and-so or please give that piece of jewelry to thus-and-so. Take the guesswork out of it will we'll be very help, um, helpful for those that have to come after you. Yeah, more great advice. All right, so the last question I've got here for you. Um, can you tell the audience how they can get a copy of your book or both books and how they can listen to your podcast? Oh, yeah. It's, I try to make things easy. I put it all on my website, So, which I have a blog now, too. Um, I, I, talk, I stir up a little trouble on that because I'm afraid to express my opinion. <laughs> um, but at any rate, it's all on my webpage, and that is all lowercase, and it's www.jan.com. C-A-N-T-Y-P-H-D dot com. No um, period, just jancantyphd.com. And what they will find when they get there is the books, the podcast. But the books are available on Amazon. Uh, the first one was, as you mentioned, uh, is a true crime memoir called A Life Divided that just takes the reader through all that twists and turns of what happened. Um, also, at the end, I tried to broaden it to advice for 
people in my shoes. And then the second book is a reference book, and it's it's called What Now? Navigating the Aftermath of Homicide and Suicide. And what I tried to do is to organize it longitudinally, starting with the death notification, dealing with the media, understanding the investigation, planning the funeral. And there is a chapter in there, by the way, on finances. And because your finances, even if you are organized, are up and down because your whole thing is, unless it's a little child that maybe died, but if it's a breadwinner in the household, your life has changed financially too. And Mm -hmm. that's something we often overlook. Uh, And then that book also has a great deal of resources in it, in the back for support, different organizations, different groups, different websites and so forth. Uh, And I want to give credit where credit is due. My second book, the What Now book, I had the privilege of 17 people who offered at free of charge to me their uh, expertise in helping me write it in when I got into technical questions. Like, for example, I have a good friend who's in construction and I wanted to write this chapter about, okay, you inherit the house and it's up for probate and now it's going to sit in the humidity in Florida for six months. What do you do with it? How do you keep it? in good condition. Hmm. I don't know all the nuances. He did. And he gave me a list or conversely in Minnesota, if you have a house and how do you, you know, how do you keep the pipes from freezing and how do you protect it in a, you know, so on. So I had that. I I called up this one attorney in um, Chicago, didn't know me from Adam. He was a very well-known defense attorney. And I explained the book and I said, I want to have a chapter in there on what to do if you're wrongly accused of the homicide of your loved one. And I'm not an attorney, but I'd like to, can I read to you my list of 16 items to do if you are wrongly, if you feel you're being wrongly railroaded for the conviction, because it does happen, of your loved one. Can I read it to you and tell me what you think? And he goes, yeah, I got five minutes. I thought, oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> so I read the list and he only added one more to the list. Other than that, he said it was fine. I said, can I quote you saying you gave your AOK? And he goes, sure, why not? You know, people were just so nice to me. And because, as I mentioned earlier, I'm very active in the Innocence Project. I want people who commit murder to be held accountable, but I do not want the wrong person to be held accountable. So I, I appreciate you being here with me today, Dr. Canty. Our guest today yeah, has been sure. Dr. Jan Canty. And I just want to, again, thank you for joining us and telling us your harrowing tale of survival and starting over. Thanks for, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's it for today's edition of Real Life and Other Fantasies. Join us again next week for another storytelling adventure. Until then, don't forget to shine some light wherever you go and be good to each other in 2024. That was another edition of Real Life and Other Fantasies with your host, Melvin E. Edwards. Join us again next time for more stories about more things than you can imagine. Some of those true stories may even be about real life. See you next time.